You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, Acts 12. How does one tackle an entire chapter, right? Especially when, um, you know, think about the book of Galatians. When we went through Galatians, they're like, we're trudging away a verse at a time, it seemed like. And now we got an entire chapter. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. In this, in this particular way, I'm going to be imposing some theology upon this text in hopes that we'll see what God is doing as we talk about what well, we got the death of James, and we got something going on with Peter, and then we got the death of Herod. Then we got this last, this verse 24 about the Word of God increasing. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce this chapter with this question. What does it mean to say God is sovereign? In our uh, Reformed circles, right, uh, Attributing sovereignty to God is often used and assumed. You, you've heard me use that particular theological term. God is sovereign, and when I say it, I mean it. Um, when we say God is sovereign, we are attributing to God a supreme authority over His created universe. <laughs> when my kids create structures with magnetiles, this is amazing to watch, like, they are demonstrating sovereignty over their creations. They create like a castle or whatever. And all of a sudden, they become really protective over their creations. Like they don't want another sibling to get in the way of this beautiful thing they made. They become sovereign over it, they want control over it. When we say God is sovereign, we are attempting to explain the divine control of God over everything. So, every atom that makes up a solid, a liquid, gas, and plasma has been created by God and for God. Every atom continues to be sustained by God's sovereignty. Every molecule in your body has been created by God and is sustained by God's sovereign hand. There is nothing created or uncreated that is outside the purview of God's sovereignty. This is all leading somewhere. The word sovereign and sovereignty is not defined in the Bible like a dictionary. You know, you got your dictionary, you got your word, and then you have your definition. But sovereignty is something we see in the Bible. We see the sovereignty of God at work in dialogues that take place in Scripture. We see the sovereignty of God described oftentimes by the psalmist, and we'll get to that in a moment. We see the sovereignty of God in events that take place. Here are a few passages I want to share to help frame the sovereignty of God as we look at Acts 12. First, here's part of Psalm 19. Many of you know it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, question, who put that there to begin with? God. Day and day, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God knows all. He sees all. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. This imagery is brilliant. In them, He, God, has sent set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving the chambers. Chambers when the sun comes up in the morning. It's like the bridegroom leaving the chamber. It's just beautiful and magnificent. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of him, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 19 tells us how the created world not only glorifies God, but the creation is sustained because of God. He is sovereign over it. Here, here's Matthew 10, right? Jesus says this. Now, this is, this is the main point of what Jesus is saying, but it's going to make my point. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Listen to this. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I'm, I'm losing hair. But God still knows every single one on this increasingly balding head. So not only does a sparrow fly or fall because of God, but he knows us intimately. One more. Here's Isaiah 46. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will, I will accomplish my purposes. Not I'm going to think about my purposes and accomplishing them. I will accomplish my purposes. God knows the end from the beginning. Even before there was a beginning, he had a plan and a purpose which he will see come to fruition. The point being made for our purposes is that the sovereignty of God is more than God having control over his creation, right? God knows the intimate details of his creation. And God expresses his sovereignty, I'm going to give you another big theological word, with this idea we call providence. Providence. Meaning providence is sovereignty in the service of the wise and good purposes of God. John Piper. Providence is God's sovereignty in action. The order and course of events in Acts 12 happened because of God's providence. He's sovereign over it and he's providently working in his created world. So I wonder if Reformed folks, all that is kind of a prelude, I wonder if Reformed folks truly understand the implications of what it means for God to be sovereign. Do we really understand? Is our belief in the sovereignty of God merely like intellectual? Or do we see how our belief in the sovereignty of God is a comfort for weary Christians? It's a reality that aids the suffering soul. The sovereignty of God gives your soul eternal hope in the midst of like this hopeless world. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Because when James is murdered, we, also, we often don't think about the pain and suffering that people endure because James was a friend. 
we have to ask, is God sovereign over all of that? I should also mention that the sovereignty of God is often misapplied by Christians. Uh, For example, some Christians are quick to attribute the sovereignty of God in something that is being advocated for or something good that happens, right? Look what happened. God is sovereign. Get the balloons. Have the parade. But my observation is sometimes we are not as quick to attribute the sovereignty of God when we are up against adversity or when something doesn't go our particular way. Quick example. When Barack Obama was elected president, yes, I'm getting political and we're not even at November 3rd. When Barack Obama was elected president of these United States, I heard nothing about the sovereignty of God. I did hear from conservative evangelicals that God was sovereign over the improbable election of Donald Trump, which 80% of evangelicals voted for him. I heard a lot about that. I've heard things like God has called Donald Trump to be president of the United States from evangelical leaders. God is the one who placed Trump in the presidency. And you know what? I don't disagree with those statements at all. But you know what? The same God who was sovereign to place Donald Trump in the presidency placed Barack Obama in the presidency. Before that, it was George W. Bush. And before that, it was Bill Clinton. And we can go on and on and on down the line. Is not God sovereign over all of that? If you're thinking, hey, Sean, why are you bringing up politics again? I'm bringing it up because the last part of Acts 12 is about God's sovereign rule over a king. Acts 12 forces us to ask several honest and hard questions, I think good questions, about the sovereignty of God. Do you think God is sovereign over creation, government, and over your very life? Do you think that? Do you believe that your ability to wake up this morning is because of God's sovereign hand? It is God's sovereign hand that allowed you to open your eyes. It is God's sovereign mercy that allowed you to take a breath of air. I think Acts 12 also provides for us soothing answers regarding the sovereignty of God, which is how I will end. Acts 12 helps us to see how God is being sovereign is yet another example of this world being turned upside down. Hence, the sermon series title, The World Being Turned Upside Down. Because let's face it, most people do not believe in an external force or being that has determined everything. Many people do not believe that behind a politician, a king, a queen, a prime minister rising to the office or then being voted out of office is because God made it so. 
Most people do not believe that their very life is a result of the sovereign mercy of God. Many people of faith do not believe salvation is a direct result of God's sovereign choice. This chapter in Acts help us, helps us to wrestle and understand how life and death is connected to the sovereignty of God and, as I already mentioned, how government is connected to the sovereignty of God. So I want to consider the sovereignty of God in Acts 12 with these four headings to help kind of guide your thinking. We're going to talk talk about the sovereignty of God in the death of James, the sovereignty of God in the life of Peter, the sovereignty of God in the death of Herod, the sovereignty of God in the life of the church. Here's one more thought before getting into the details of the text. One more general thought about this passage. Everything God is sovereignly doing is ultimately leading toward the redemption of man and the restoration of all things. You ever wonder, like, where's Acts leading us to? Right now, where we stand, and you, where I stand, and you sit, where is this all leading toward? The redemption of man and the restoration of all things. Redemption and restoration is not explicitly stated in this chapter, but I highlight them so we know where things are leading. The sovereignty of God has to be more than a theological conversation. It tells us something about what God is doing. Now the details. The first detail we need to tackle from our passage is, oddly enough, who is Herod? Like, who is this guy? Along with Peter, Herod is the main character in Acts 12, uh, the king Herod mentioned in Acts 12 is the grandson of the great king Herod that we read about in the Gospels. You might remember the Gospels in particular. Um, right before Jesus was born, we have the great king Herod who, what did he want to do? He wanted to slaughter innocent children. Why? Because there was a, a seer or a prophet who said there's going to be another king and this great king Herod didn't want his kingship being challenged. So, we have a murderer there, and we have another murderer here. We read in Acts 12, About the time Herod the king laid out violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. In an attempt to keep peace with the Jews, Herod was willing to murder innocent people who happened to be Christians. Of course, the Jews were happy to see Herod kill Christians. They were happy to see Herod do their dirty work. From their perspective, they were tired of seeing this, what they would say, a cult of Christians, these followers preaching about Jesus and multiplying at a dizzying rate. We see that one of the murders is James, the brother of John. The James we read about in verse 2 is not the same James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, was the disciple of Jesus. Along with John and Peter, James witnessed the, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. That's Mark 5. James was at the transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew 17. And he saw the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. So James was murdered here. He has seen a lot. He had walked with Jesus. He was let into Jesus' inner circle.
He was a key leader in this budding Christian movement. But as we read in verses 1 to 5, James is singled out by Herod and killed with the sword. The Jews applauded Herod. Now, before talking about the sovereignty of God and the death of James, I want to juxtapose um, the death of James with the life of Peter. So I'm going to table the sovereignty of God over his death just for a moment so we can look at the life of Peter. After James died, Peter was singled out also, but he was not executed. Don't know if that was the end goal, but he wasn't at this point. He was thrown into prison. Word got out about Peter's arrest, which brought the church to its knees in prayer. Verse 5, as we have read, a series of miracles took place so that Peter could be freed from prison. Here's everything it happened. You want to know what providence looks like in a miraculous way? Here we go. An angel of the Lord struck Peter to wake him up while he was sleeping between two soldiers. I'm just imagining this in my head. Peter's sleeping. Soldier on one side, soldier on another side. And I feel like the angel's kicking him in the ribs to wake him up. After the angel tells Peter to get up, and then the chains around his wrists just kind of fall. Like there was no key present. It just fell off. And then as Peter and the angel were making their way from prison to the city because there was like a safe haven in the city for them to go to, the city gates just opened. Like, that doesn't happen in a normal day. Just open by itself. The succession of events reminds me of like, you read the books Harry Potter. It's like someone with a wand is just making things happen that defy our rational explanation. All this happened right under the noses of a number of soldiers and prison guards. Peter's miraculous release from prison is an answer to prayer. The providence of God was clearly at work. In light of everything that happened in verses 6 to 10, it would seem natural to talk about miracles again. (laughs) We can be specific and ask questions like, why are miracles in the Bible and are they still relevant today? But if you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, you know that I've preached on miracles twice already. So if you want to know more about are miracles relevant and how do we explain them? I'm just going to push you toward a message in Acts 3, then another message in Acts 9. You can just find them on the website. But I don't want to belabor that point again. Instead, I want to highlight the response to Peter's release from prison and then ask the question, why was Peter spared his life but James was murdered with a sword? And what does the sovereignty of God have to do with all this? After Peter was released, he made his way to the house of Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but a different Mary. It was at Mary's house where the church was, as we read, praying. Peter knocks on the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda shows up, instantly recognizes Peter's voice, but instead of letting him in, she like runs to the house to tell everyone. It seems to me that Rhoda's joy blinded her from doing the obvious, to, like, to let Peter into the gate. Now, I think Rhoda's response would have been my response. I've been like making laps around the house like we've been praying, we've been praying and what's at the gate right now? The answer to our prayer. Look at Rhoda's responses, innocent and precious, even if it lacked kind of like an acknowledgement of the obvious, like let him in, get him in, now. To the more pressing question, why was Peter's life preserved while James 
was not. Is God sovereign over both of their lives and deaths? Regarding Peter, the answer is easy and kind of comfortable as we look at Acts 12. Yes, it's clear from this story that God orchestrated the prison break. God providentially made sure Peter was released from prison. But why did God allow James to die? His suffering and death is the more difficult and uncomfortable question. I I think the answer to this question is clear from Scripture, but sometimes difficult for us to grasp for several reasons, but I think emotion or we're just denying the truth. Psalm 39 verse 4 says that God knows how many days we are to live. Here's Psalm 139 verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, so before you were born, God knew about you. And before you were born, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for you and for me. Yet when there was none of them. The principle here does not tell us or tell you how many years you will live. The principle here does not tell us how you will die. The principle is that the Lord knows and has determined it for you. These verses and others are a comfort when someone we know dies at a good old age, when a full life has been lived. But what do we think when we perceive a life has been cut short or when someone is murdered like James? Is God sovereign over all the suffering and the death? It's not terribly controversial to say God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. The more difficult question is to what degree is God in control as we consider the murder of James? A murderer seemingly cuts short the number of a person's days, right? When someone is murdered, like we see here with Herod and James, it's like Herod, it seems to us, is acting as God. Has the murderer successfully seized control from God and determined for himself the time and manner of one's death? Difficult questions. Before answering the question, any discussion about the sovereignty of God And a person's free will is like just walking this tightrope. I learned this analogy from a friend, and it's been helpful for me. I'll pass it on to you. When walking on the sovereignty of God tightrope, we must speak about the sovereignty of God in such a way that does not excuse a person's sin. In other words, God is not culpable for Herod's sin of murder. Conversely, we must make sure to not fall on the other side of the tightrope and speak about God's sovereignty as such a way as we can change his mind. We should never speak about God's sovereignty in such a way where we can feel like we are sovereign over him. So we must embrace the tension and walk on the tightrope using Scripture as our guide. Theologian Wayne Grudem said this about the sovereignty of God, free will, and God's Word. We must remember that Scripture nowhere shows as God directly doing anything evil, 
but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Moreover, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil. And Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong they do. Here are two examples of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man at work, which I think helps again frame what we're seeing in Acts 12. The first example is a sneak peek of the sermon series on Jonah, which will begin in Easter. If you know the story of Jonah, you will remember he was trying to run from the call of God, right? So God's like, hey, Jonah, I need you to go preach to this city of Nineveh. And Jonah's like, nah, not, not me. So I'm going to get on a ship and I'm going to go as far away as possible. Where can I go? I'm going to go to Tarshish. Okay, maybe if I get on this boat and go away, God will not see me. If I just keep running, God will not know. While traversing the Mediterranean Sea in this boat, a massive storm comes upon the ship, right? If you know the story, you know what happens. The seamen think Jonah's rebellion against God is the reason for the storm. So what do they do? They chuck him into the sea, swallowed by a giant fish. But in reflection of the events that took place, Jonah makes a remarkable statement. He confesses to God while in the belly of this great fish. Look. He's talking to God. You cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the sea. He don't blame the seamen. Jonah was picking up what God was putting down. Jonah's acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God corrected, began to correct his perception of personal control. The second example comes from the book of Genesis. I actually just read through this recently in my devotions. Uh, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, right? Many of his brothers were jealous of Joseph because of the favor of their father bestowed on Joseph. Like he got this really cool robe, is multicolored, and he's having dreams, and in his dreams... He's like, you're all going to bow down to me. And all of his brothers are like, no, not going to happen. And Joseph eventually found himself in a pit because of his brothers. And they sold into slavery. Eventually ended up in Egypt. Long story short, Joseph spends time in prison in Egypt because of false allegations. He knew suffering. We know the, we know the good part of the story at the end, but Joseph knew suffering And then one day, his brothers come from Egypt looking for food because of a famine. Joseph would reveal himself to his brothers, the very people who threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery. But despite all the hardship and pain, Joseph makes several remarkable statements to his brothers. God sent me before you to, preser to preserve life. Like how was, Think about how he was sent thrown into a pit, went into slavery. And yet, Joseph says, God sent me before you. And then several chapters later, it says, you meant, this is Joseph again talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We see from Jonah 
and Joseph, how the sovereignty of God is at work through providence. From these stories, we see how the sovereignty of God leads toward, shall I say, restoration and redemption. Like if you just back up, God is redeeming and restoring. There are several other ways to resolve the tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of men, but Scripture, I think, is united and clear. God can bring from the most unfortunate events and cause good to take place. The death of James and the providence of God to free Peter from prison for reasons we will not entirely know this side of heaven were events that took place in God's overall plan to see restoration and redemption take place on earth. They are events that fit neatly in God's plan to advance His kingdom. The life of James was not in vain. His death was not in vain. The life of Peter, who would eventually be murdered by being crucified upside down, his life and death were not in vain. They were both image bearers of God, used by God for their good, for God's purposes, and for His glory. There's another aspect of God's sovereignty that we read in this passage. Ryan alluded to it as he was talking about Jehoshaphat and the proper response. See God's sovereignty at work in the death of Herod. I want to reread part of this passage which describes the death of Herod. Verse 20. I'll pick up there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the, king, on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon his throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. <laughs> eaten by worms and breathed his last. You know, people only ask questions about the sovereignty of God and death when a good person dies. But few people are concerned about the death of an evil man, right? Like, no one ever says, where was God when Hitler died? Right? Instead, we ask questions like, where was God when Dietrich Bonhoeffer died in a Nazi concentration camp? Nonetheless, even though we can ask the questions, God's sovereignty is clearly displayed here. In particular, God's sovereignty can be connected with, like I said earlier, government. It's connected with princes and presidents, prime ministers and kings. In the case of Herod, he was getting too big for his britches. Because of a series of circumstances, the people were saying that Herod is not a man, but he is God. They were deifying him, verse 23. And Herod was taking it all. He's like, yes, my glory. 
This is all about me and my kingdom. The story of Herod is eerily similar to the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament in uh, Daniel 4, right? I don't know if you know the story, but Nebuchadnezzar is strolling around on his palace, on his palace roof, and he's admiring his kingdom. He says, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence of my vast power? And is what Nebuchadnezzar says, For my majestic glory? Before Nebuchadnezzar, you just read that, it's brilliant. Before Nebuchadnezzar is even able to finish his statement, he is, he is pushed out to live with the cattle and he's eating grass. God's like, uh-uh. He gone. What Nebuchadnezzar and Herod did not see is it was God who allowed them to rule. It was God who also took their little kingdoms away from them. We don't always know the details of why God raises up a ruler one time and then casts the ruler away at another time. We don't always know the details. But we do know that God's good purposes are always at work. God's mission of redemption and restoration is at work. Again, this is what we see in Acts 12. Look at verse 24 and how all the events of Acts 12 lead to verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. James was murdered. Peter imprisoned and then miraculously released. Herod, dead. And yet we read in verse 24, the Spirit of God was at work as the word of God was preached. Listen, verse 24 is, a, is the point of Acts 12. It's like, where are we going with all these stories and murder of life and death? Verse 24, God is sovereign over the advancement of the gospel. Verse 24 is why the death of James is not in vain. Verse 24 is the reason why Peter still has his life. Verse 24 helps us to understand the death of Herod. The message of the Word of God in verse 24 is the reason for your life and the reason for all your circumstances. God is sovereignly at work to bring redemption and restoration to all things as the Word of God increases and multiplies and as God's kingdom advances. What this all means for your life, Christian, is that you have been inserted into God's sovereign plan of divine redemption, just like Peter and James. Just like Peter and James. People are always asking the question, how can I understand the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures are speaking about us. Here's why the message of the Word, in verse 24, is the main point of Acts 12. In light of everything that I've said about the sovereignty of God in all these events. If you believe the message is that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect, perfect life, if you believe Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross, and on that cross, your sin was nailed with Jesus. 
If you believe Jesus rose from death to life, and with his resurrection, you too, Christian, have risen from death to life. And as you are living, you no longer have sin as the weight upon your shoulder. If you believe Jesus ascended into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and then someday, listen, someday, like James, you will ascend to be with your Savior. And if you can see that all of this has been accomplished by a gracious and merciful God, then you joyfully exist in God's sovereign plan of redemption and restoration. Let's pray.